You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at The Gate. And, um, you know, as uh, Pastor Brad mentioned earlier, um, if you were here on time, um, he mentioned that tomorrow is Reformation Day. And, you know, one of the many outcomes, there's, there's so many outcomes that came out of the Reformation, uh, but one of them in particular that I'm thankful for um, is that leaders in the church can now get married. Woo! Uh, they, they don't have to. They don't have to, but, but they can, right? Um, before that, the Catholic Church had decreed that priests were to remain celibate and single, but thanks to Protestantism and a return to the Word of God, that rule no longer has any weight to stand on. And uh, this will be the subject of today's topic as we continue through our sermon series through 1 Corinthians It'll be all about marriage. But yet, this message isn't just for married people, okay? Um, In fact, throughout this whole passage, which we'll be going through over the next couple of weeks, um, we'll find that the Apostle Paul also has widows and singles in mind as well. Almost first and foremost, actually. Almost as a more more important. Um, something which I'll admit the Western church in its obsession with marriage often fails to do, right? Um, So if you're here this morning and and you're single or unmarried, um, please don't tune out, okay? Please don't tune out. Uh, This message is for you as well. But with that being said, we'll also be encouraging you specifically uh, in in a message that's soon to come. So look forward to that. And, And if you are married... Hopefully, you'll be challenged to grow in both your understanding and your growth as a married couple. So have uh, open ears to, to, to learn and, and to listen and, and hopefully to be encouraged as well. Uh, bottom line is, is that it's important, whether we're married or not, that, that we all have a proper biblical understanding of what God designed marriage to be. Um, and so once again, I'm going to let you know, like I had to do a couple of weeks ago, that this passage does deal with some mature material. And so take that information as you will. Um, Hopefully it won't be too cringy, as some have warned me that it might be. Um, So here we go. So here's the Word of God, the authoritative Word of God. If you want to turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 16. We'll be reading through that. First Corinthians 7, 1 to 16. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Who's ready for this? Um, Timothy Keller, in, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I highly recommend to married couples, he hilariously writes, the Bible is a very uncomfortable book for the prudish. It's, it's true. The Bible isn't shy about any topics, really. Uh, but this is especially so when it comes to the topic of sex. For example, the Bible often speaks about couples getting to quote-unquote know each other. And when the Bible uses the word quote-unquote know in reference to a man and a woman together, well, I think you get it. As Pastor Blair said this week, if you know, you know. Um, not only that, but <sighs> let that sink in. But not only that, but one would only have to read through, you know, something like Song of Solomon, right? Which, which is a very titillating and honest dialogue between a man and a woman about their sexual passion, pleasure, admiration, and longing for one another in marriage, right? The, the, this actually reminds me. Bear with me here. It's kind of a weird segue. This actually reminds me of the time when my 14-year-old son came home from Bible camp this year, this summer, and, and, and he told me all the teen boys in his cabin had spent time with their counselor reading the Bible together each night before bed. And I was so happy to hear that. And, and so I asked, you know, what part of the Bible had you guys chosen to read from? Then he kind of snickered and he said, Song of Solomon. <laughs> and I have to admit, I was a little conflicted at that moment because I wasn't sure if I should be unimpressed by this or just happy they were reading the Bible. Uh, but that's the thing, though. You know, if you're of, of the generation that thinks sexuality is dirty or taboo or shameful or, or if you were raised to think that way, you know, you'll have a really uncomfortable time reading through God's Word and you'll probably have a really uncomfortable time this morning as I go through my sermon. Um, so I apologize. 
Um, but you'll also find that if you do read through the Bible, God doesn't think of, of, of sex as this dirty thing or at all in, in the right manner, right? In fact, God designed it from the, from the beginning to be a beautiful reflection and expression of the unifying covenant of self-giving love, which he has for us. Unfortunately, as, as we did discuss a couple of weeks ago, the sinful human heart and the desires of the flesh have distorted sex into something sinfully self-serving and self-gratifying. And, and this is also the reason the Bible confines sex to only take place within a marriage. Not because it has such a low view of it, but rather because it has such a high view of it. As Timothy Keller again writes, sex is for whole life self-giving. However, the sinful heart wants to use sex for selfish reasons, not self-giving. And therefore, the Bible puts many rules around it to direct us to use it in the right way within a marriage between a man and woman. So this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in, in our chapter, which we read this morning. He's directing the Corinthian church to have a positive view of sex as it's practiced the way it was intended to be within a marriage. Ultimately, this is because sex is a physical and soulful expression of, as well as an active part of forming, everything that a marriage is designed to be. I'm going to repeat that. Sex is a physical and soulful expression of, as well as an active part of forming everything that a marriage is designed to be. Okay, so now we have to understand that, that as, we, as we come up to this point in the letter to the Corinthians, that Paul is shifting gears a bit. Up till now, he, he's been addressing concerns about division and immorality within the church that, that he'd heard about. But now he, he starts to address specific questions which the church has written to him about and asked him to clarify. So this makes interpreting a little bit more difficult because we don't really know exactly what the specific question he's being asked is. But uh, in, in this case, uh, it seems to be on the subject of whether or not it's more spiritual to be sexually abstinent than sexually active. And, and what's interesting is, is that just like there are issues with sexual immorality, this, this way of thinking that abstinence is more spiritual also seems to be a direct influence from the Greco-Roman culture which they lived in. For at that time, and, and as I've mentioned before, their culture viewed all things physically to be inherently evil. And, so, and, every, and everything spiritual was good, right? So everything physical was inherently evil. And so in response to that, there were two schools of thought. One that encouraged hedonism, to pursue all forms of physical pleasure and satisfaction, which we addressed a couple weeks ago, and the other, which, which encouraged asceticism, which is to avoid all forms of physical indulgence and pleasures of the flesh. And so since Paul had just written to them about avoiding sexual immorality, and he'd probably written to them previously about it already in another letter, which we don't have, that's, that he wrote before this one, it does seem natural then that some of them would have jumped to this conclusion. Some of them seem to have had the thought that, that if sex is so easily corrupted by our lust, by our flesh, then they figured, like the ascetics in their culture, that it should then be avoided altogether in all areas of life, even within a marriage. And to that, 
Paul says, not so fast. Not quite. Okay? Though he doesn't fully disagree with them here. In fact, he, he concedes with their ideas about abstinence from his own position of singleness. Right? And he even says that he desires that everyone could be like him in his singleness or in his own undivided devotion to the Lord, which is how he describes being single later in verse 35. Bottom line, though, is that for Christians to remain single is, is synonymous with remaining sexually abstinent. And this, Paul says, is good and pleasing to the Lord. And furthermore, is also physically and emotionally and spiritually healthy for one's soul, which is something we're going to get into um, and we're going to learn about more in a couple of weeks. Yet at the same time, he also notes very enthusiastically, it seems, that, that there's actually one type of relationship where sex should almost never be avoided and instead should be pursued regularly, and that's within a marriage. He writes, a man should have his wife and a woman should have her husband. We often mistakenly translate that as a command for men and women to rush and go get married. That's actually not what it means. That's actually not what he's saying here. Uh, he's actually talking to married men and married women and telling them that they should be intimate. And just to make that clear, he continues that they should, and by saying that they should give to each other their conjugal rights because they each belong to each other. So he's saying, yeah, it might be spiritual for singles to remain abstinent, but it's spiritual for couples to be intimate, for married couples to be intimate. The only exception, he says, is if the husband and wife mutually agree to limit their intimacy in order to devote themselves to prayer for a limited time, which is a good thing to do. But even then, he says, right after that, when they're done doing that, they should make sure to come together again. And so, so to be clear, Paul's not simply giving permission for married couples to have sex here. He's actually saying that the Bible commands them to do it. Why? Because as I said before, because sex is a physical and soulful expression of, as well as an active part of forming everything that a biblical marriage is designed to be. It's an integral part of marriage. And um, this is why casually hooking up or having sex outside of marriage can often be emotionally confusing and even damaging in the end because, because when you do it, whether you realize it or not, what you're doing is you're expressing things like unity, trust, openness, devotion, and a profound self-giving love of joining together with another human being, right? Things that can only be fully realized and built upon within a marriage. On the other hand, this is also why sex is so important within a marriage, because it expresses and builds upon the unity, trust, openness, devotion, and profound self-giving love of joining together with another human being. Right? This is how God designed it. Everyone following so far? Okay. So, yeah, Henry's like, all right. Um, so, if sex is meant to be both an expression and a forming catalyst 
of what a God-designed marriage is meant to be, then our next logical question is, what can we learn from this passage concerning marriage? What can we learn from this passage concerning marriage? What I'm really asking is, what can Paul's candid view on, on sex here, and even his views on divorce, teach us about what it means to be married? And to answer that, I have six points, so none of that three-point sermon silliness. We're going to double up this morning. Uh, don't worry, though, because even though a chapter or a book could be written about each point, and, and there have been, uh, I won't dwell too much on each one so that we're not here all day. But if you do want more information about these points, or I'm willing to talk to you about that, I'm willing to recommend books to you as well. So come and talk to me if you, if you want more information about these points or clarification or whatever, okay? Uh, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm here for. I'm also here, and, and so is Pastor Blair and Pastor Brad. We're here to talk to couples as well if they need to talk to, talk to somebody. Um, so just want to throw that out there. But anyways, six points about what marriage is that we can learn from this passage. There's probably more points that we could learn, but I'm just going to do six. And my first point may not be the most exciting, but I do believe that it's one of the most important important points for us to grasp, and it's this. Number one, marriage is not for everyone. Marriage is not for everyone. As secular as our society is, surprisingly enough, we we still hold that institution of marriage as if it's, we don't respect it, but we hold it up as if it's the be-all, end-all. Like, as soon as we get married, that means you've, you've made it, right? Western Christian culture is probably even more guilty of this. We idolize and elevate the institution of marriage like it's first-class citizenship in the kingdom to the point that we even unintentionally make people feel like if they don't have it, somehow their life isn't complete. But here's the thing. Marriage doesn't complete anyone. Okay? Marriage doesn't complete anyone. Probably heard that quote in a movie, you know, oh, you complete me. No, that's garbage. Marriage doesn't complete anyone. You're in for a world of trouble and confusion and frustration and disappointment if you think another human being can do that for you. Not to mention that it's also unfair to place that burden on someone else. And so Paul understands and wants us to understand that the only one who completes us is Jesus Christ. To that end, Francis and Lisa Chan write, we all need to prioritize our eternal relationship with our Creator above all things. Besides, until you relate properly to God, you won't be much help to anyone else. People who aren't living well make matters worse by living together. That's so important. Our our vertical relationship with God through Jesus Christ is way more significant than any of our horizontal relationships with each other. Okay, As Jesus reminds us, the first commandment, we're to love God with all we are. Heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? First and foremost, because only then can we actually love our neighbor as ourselves. Besides, as as Jesus points out to us as well, marriage 
doesn't even exist in eternity. You won't be, you won't be married in a new heaven and a new earth. Listen to what he says from Matthew 22, 30. This is Jesus saying this. He says, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So Paul's number one concern in this passage isn't whether we're married or single. The most important thing is our relationship to the Lord in light of eternity. Which means that he also is perfectly content and justified in writing in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 7, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Because it's about that relationship with the Lord. And this might be for a time or, or for your whole life. Right? And so, so to the singles, I want to say you've been given the gift, as Paul calls it, the gift, to be free and joyfully content in your relationship to the Lord. Pursue that. That will satisfy you. And to the married couples, I want to say on this end, we, we need to step off our high horse and make sure we're including and honoring those who are single because they are just as significant to the kingdom of God and they need community too. Amen? Which leads me to my second point. Number two, marriage is holy. Marriage is holy. When, when entering into a marriage, you're entering into what's called a covenant relationship. Uh, we often only use that word covenant on, on a wedding day or whatever, right? Um, so it's not really familiar to us, but we are entering into a covenant relationship. And this type of relationship is, is more than a promise, right? It, it involves a binding and even sacred agreement between two individuals made before God, which means that, that just like God does in his covenant with us, and as Matt Chandler writes in his book, he says, in the covenant of marriage, husband and wife fully commit and give themselves to each other. As it says in Genesis, to become one flesh. Right? They belong to God and to each other exclusively. It's such a strong and sacred bond, in fact, that Paul even applies this holy status to a Christian who has an unbelieving spouse. Because ultimately, the, the marriage covenant is meant to be a testimony to the holiness of God. And as we can read in Ephesians 5, it represents the holy union between Christ and the church. And, and sex, of course, within a marriage is, is a physical proclamation and consummation of this truth, of two becoming one flesh. As uh, about this, Keller again writes, sex is a way to say to somebody else, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And if you use it to say anything else, it's a lie. It's a nonverbal piece of communication God designed, and it's meant to carry a message. God said sex is a way to give yourself totally to somebody else and to say, I belong completely and totally and exclusively to you. And and this is certainly what Paul has in mind uh, when he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so in marriage, right, you give yourselves 
to one another. You belong to one another and no one else for the glory of God. Furthermore, Paul reminds married couples that being intimate regularly also ensures that it keeps them holy, that it keeps them from being tempted by sexual immorality like adultery or whatever else. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, and it was huge back then, just like it is today, that temptation, he says, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So again, it's, it's important that a husband and wife remain regularly intimate in marriage because it plays an integral role in keeping that marriage healthy and exclusively holy. as does spending time with the Lord, of course, right? Which seems to be why Paul makes an exception for married couples to make a decision together to devote themselves to prayer for a time. But then again, right, he tells them to come together again, lest Satan has an opportunity to tempt them, right? So marriage is holy, which brings me to my next point. Number three, marriage is about mutually serving one another. Marriage is about mutually serving one another. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I make sure to remind engaged couples that marriage is not a 50-50 relationship, but that it's a 100-100 relationship. It sounds cheesy, but that's what it is. It's not a, a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately type of agreement. It's committing to humbly serve and love the other person with all you are, regardless of what you get back. Okay, to give a 100%, to give 100% through thick and thin, even on the days when your spouse isn't giving 100% back in return. And this, of course, this is easier said than done, and no one is perfect in doing it. In fact, it takes a lifetime of marriage to, to mature into even being close, right? But yet that's the call of every married person. Ephesians 5.21 says to married couples, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we know that Jesus willingly and humbly submitted himself and laid down his life for us even when we didn't deserve it, when we were giving 0% right? Jesus gave 100%. He gave all of himself. And as Christians, we're to model that sacrificial selflessness. And this is especially so within a marriage. Married couples should be primarily concerned with the well-being of their spouse, serving them, seeking their good, sacrificing for them, encouraging them in their faith, and so on. Later in this letter, Paul will, will remind the Corinthians of what true love is, that it's patient, that it's kind, that it doesn't boast, so on and so forth. But one of the things he says about love, right, is that it's not self-seeking. Marriage is about humbling yourself for the good of someone else. And the good thing is, though, is that this, this humble submission to one another is meant to be mutual. 
It's never demanding or forced. You can never say to your spouse, you're supposed to submit to me. No, that's called abuse, okay? It's never demanding or forced. It's always mutual. And, and so in a healthy relationship, if, if each person is concerned and sacrificing for the other, that, that means each person should find f- fulfillment and still feel loved. That's how it's supposed to work. And of course, sex is a reflection of that mutually serving one another. And the, the world views sex as an opportunity to self-gratify the desires of the flesh, but in a healthy, God-honoring marriage, a couple should seek to please their spouse right? as best they can because their body is no longer their own, but it belongs to the other. So to be married then is to live for the other, for the good of your spouse. And that end, it should not be entered into lightly. Which brings me to my next point. Number four, marriage is passionate and intimate. Marriage is passionate and intimate. To, to couples who are betrothed or engaged, Paul writes that it's good, good to remain that way if they can, but yet if they're burning with passion for each other, then they should get married. In, in writing it that way, Paul's acknowledging that love is passionate, right? Unfortunately, Hollywood and, and TV shows have given such a bad taste to marriage, implying that once you get married, that passion wanes. But this doesn't have to be so. Of course, Let's be honest, it's easier to be passionate at the beginning of a marriage when things are still exciting and new. But what tends to happen over time is that the familiar and routine and stresses of life, they get in the way, right? But God never intended our marriages to be boring. If we go back to the marriage song in Song of Solomon, right, we see that he designed us to be passionate and romantic beings, burning with passion, passionately in love, passionately reflecting and expressing that love. And if your marriage doesn't look like that, or if you're struggling through that, it it can look like that. It can. Of course, it takes work. It takes intentionality. It takes time spent together, time spent serving each other, time spent listening to each other, delighting in each other, building each other up, enduring hardships together, time spent with the Lord together, time spent giving gifts to each other. And of course, it takes time spent being sexually intimate and open with one another. In some cases, maybe it'll even take time spent repenting before God or one another of of times when when you were being self-centered or bitter or resentful or whatever else, right? Because quite often when a marriage has lost its passion, there's something deeper in our hearts going on. For example, Gary Thomas writes, whenever marital dissatisfaction rears its head in my marriage, I simply check my focus, right? He doesn't blame his spouse. You notice that? I simply check my focus. The times that I am happiest and most fulfilled in my marriage are the times when I am intent on drawing meaning and fulfillment from becoming a better husband than from demanding a quote-unquote better wife. Here's the point. God did not design love to be stagnant, but active and even emotional. Our our marriages and the intimacy within that marriage can and, and should reflect that. They will, and that passion will grow if, if we're truly seeking to love and serve our spouse. Which leads me to my next point. Number five, marriage is a lifelong commitment. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. 
Jesus states from Mark 10, 6-9. He says, But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Paul's teaching on on divorce in this passage reflects this statement, right? In in fact, he even tells them that it was Jesus who said it. He writes, to the married, I say, and then he says, but not I, the Lord, right? And then he says, do not separate from your spouse. So he's quoting Jesus here when he says that. And he's reminding them that marriage was designed to be a lifelong union, a reflection of the faithfulness of God to his people. And our culture, just like the Greco-Roman one at the time, doesn't usually or didn't usually treat or doesn't usually treat marriage like this, right? And in fact, at that time, similar to, to, to today, divorces were pretty common and easy to do. In fact, a, a man could just leave, just like move out, and that would be divorce back in Greco-Roman culture. It was so easy to do. Um, though to be fair, they're never emotionally easy to go through, especially when children are involved. But yet, like today, People supposedly kept, you know, falling out of love or more often than not back then, a man's wife would fall out of usefulness if she wasn't bearing children. And so they'd move on to someone else because in in that society, you would get, you know, uh, monetary rewards and and status rewards if you had, you know, up to three children. So if your wife wasn't fulfilling that, move on to someone else. And so there would be certainly that temptation within the Corinthian church, right, for, for, for them to do that. So as, as Christians, though, who've entered into this covenant relationship, we know that we can't fall out of love because love isn't based on, on feeling. Love is a choice we get to make every day. Every morning, a husband and wife wake up and have to make a decision to serve and love their spouse as Christ has loved and served us. You know, Paul even, even applies this to Christians who are married to unbelievers, right? As, as hard as it may be at times, he writes that as long as their spouse is sticking around, they're to be a witness of Christ's sacrificial love to them and to their children. And this, he writes, may even lead to their salvation. The bottom line is that sticking together for life is something that a husband and wife have vowed to do. Again, just like God's everlasting covenant to us, marriage is meant to last. In fact, again, it's meant to be a display of of God's unending and faithful love to the church. It's supposed to be a witness for that to the world. Of course, as Jesus says, divorce only exists because of humanity's sinful heart. And so it's going to happen sometimes whether it's because of infidelity or an unbelieving spouse walking away from the relationship, Paul recognizes here it it does happen, right? And if you're here this morning and you have experienced that, I'm sorry. It's never easy to go through. Fortunately, I want you to know that Jesus can and does redeem that as well, okay? Which means you don't need to live in shame or guilt, or feel like you're a lesser person because of it. Instead, you can rest in his grace. 
Focus on that relationship with him. Again, that's the relationship that satisfies, and that's the relationship that goes into eternity. But ultimately, like I said earlier, it's, it's your relationship with Jesus that matters in the end, right? So, but again, you can't control, you know, the outcome all the time, right? Because you're married to someone else. But from your end, you should not enter into a marriage unless you're committed to remaining within it. Through sickness and in health, through richer or poorer, till death do you part. Those aren't just words you say on your wedding day, right? They're significant. And this brings us to the final point this morning. Number six, marriage is dependent on God. Marriage is dependent on God. Here's the thing. And Paul certainly has this in mind as well as he writes about marriage within the context of his whole letter to, to the Corinthians that none of this can wholly be done in our own strength. None of this can wholly be done in our own strength. If, if our marriages are, are meant to be a holy testimony of Christ's humble, unending, and sacrificial love for the church, then we need Jesus to strengthen us and empower us to do it. Right? This is especially true within a marriage of two imperfect, sinful, and sometimes selfish human beings. We need the the grace and strength of God in order to live how we've been called to live. If you'll permit me to quote Keller one last time, he writes, to have a marriage that sings, I like how he describes that, a marriage that sings. To have a marriage that sings requires a spirit-created ability to serve, to take yourself out of the center, to put the needs of others ahead of your own. The Spirit's work of making the gospel real to the heart weakens the self-centeredness in the soul. The deep happiness that marriage can bring then lies on the far side of sacrificial service in the power of the Spirit. So in in his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul calls Christians to count others as more significant than themselves. And then he says, you have this mind among you in Christ Jesus. That's an encouragement. You have this mind among you in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus, we can do this. We can truly love one another sacrificially like Jesus loves us through his grace, through his Holy Spirit empowering and working in us. We just need to humbly receive that and and pay attention to him and allow him to lead us every day. Again, this is why Paul makes sure to encourage couples to take that time away from being intimate in order to be devoted in prayer, right, to spend time with the Lord and, and in his word in order to continue growing and maturing in him. And couples should do this often, uh, both individually and if you can, together, right? This will, this will only serve to enhance not only your relationship with God, but also your marriage. So for married couples, you know, please ensure for the sake of your marriage and your souls that you're doing this. You're spending time with the Lord. In conclusion, then, we have a lot of material this morning. Is that okay? In, in conclusion, then, I feel it would be appropriate to encourage married couples and even singles because this passage that I'm going to read doesn't just apply to marriages. It applies to who we are as Christians, right? So I'm, I want to encourage you with Paul's treatise on love from chapter 13. 
which is also a definition of Jesus' love for us. So this is an encouragement and a challenge for us, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. Your unending, unconditional love for us. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us, that you are faithful even when we are not. I thank you, Jesus, that you submitted yourself, that you gave everything you are, that you gave your life for us so that we could be saved, so that we could know you so that we could be in relationship with the Father. Lord God, as we, as we think about who you are, Lord God, I pray that that would be reflected in our marriages, Lord God. I pray for all the married couples here this morning, Lord God, that you would bless their marriages, Lord God, that, you would, that your Holy Spirit would, would strengthen them to live the, the life that you've called them to live, to live that, that sacrificial, self-serving love that you've called them to live, that they may be an example to the world of your love to us, that they may be an example to their children of what true love looks like, Lord God. I pray for those marriages that are struggling, Lord God, that you would turn them around, that they would have the humility to admit where they're struggling, Lord God, as well, and, and seek uh, help and counsel if they need, that they, would, that they would fall on their knees before you and repent, Lord, that there would be reconciliation if needed. Lord God, I also pray for the, the singles in this room as well, Lord God, those who are unmarried. Lord, I thank you so much for them. Lord, I pray that you would bless them as well, that they would know that they are significant in the kingdom of God, that they are significant to the body of Christ and that they matter immensely. And I pray that we as a church would make sure that we honor and value them and, and make sure, and make sure to, to show them that they are honored and valued as well, Lord God. Lord, I thank you for this word this morning, um, for the encouragement, for the challenge, Lord, that you would write it on our hearts, that we would grow through it and mature through it. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen.